0: the world of your dreams. On today's episode, my guest is Fionn Wright. Fionn is a serial entrepreneur, an executive coach, a deep thinker, and a visionary. He was named one of the 11 most influential movers and shakers in Shanghai, a city of over 24 million people, for his national television appearances and the impact of his coaching. His friends call him a mix of Tim Ferriss and Tony Robbins for his speed learning techniques paired with profound coaching transformation. He makes it his daily mission to transform into the best husband, father, and human being he can be to help as many people as he can live a life they love. Fion always asks and lives into the question, are you closer to your dream today than you were yesterday? And on this episode, we discuss first, his really diverse background. Fionn is Irish, but he's really a citizen of the world. He's lived in so many different countries, and he pulls from so many different life experiences. And as a result of all of those different experiences, he's able to have the perspective of, hey, I was raised this way, but someone from a different country has a different, completely different perspective on what the ideal life is. And so when it comes to coaching, a lot of times we project what we want onto our clients or the change that we want to make onto the world. And what Fion invites us into is exploring, well, what does this person across from me or what does this on a bigger scale, this country, this nation, this continent, what does it mean to them to change and what do they really want? And so his coaching is really informed not by what he wants for his clients, but what does, yeah, what do the clients want for themselves? And it's really the Socratic method of asking good questions and understanding all these different complexities. So we get into those complexities as well the different systems that make up our world and what makes for a really developed leader. We go into the stages of development from being a child to being a hyperachiever, and then into being someone who can hold multiple, various different perspectives at the same time. Fionn does such a wonderful job of making all of these really complicated and at times dense materials into something that I think is digestible and understandable for me, who doesn't catch on as easily to these things, and hopefully for you as a listener. I really hope that you enjoy all of his knowledge and wisdom. I know that I did. Let's settle in. Take a deep breath. (sighs) and enjoy this wide ranging diverse conversation with Fionn Wright. Fionn, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me here, Michael.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm really excited to get into it with you. We met, I think it was about two months ago and you were explaining the stages of development and instantly as you were talking, I was like, "I, I have to have this guy on because it's novel for me And I think my listeners will get a lot out of it. And before we get into your work, I actually want to know a little bit about your upbringing and what it was like, like what was young Fionn like? So what was in the right household? What was it like at the dinner table? And from there, I would also love to know, like, what did you want to be when you grew up? And just overall, what were you like as a child?
1: Yeah memories, memories flowing to the surface, which one will we start with? So I'm, I'm originally Irish, uh, born in Dublin, and uh, spent the first seven years of my life in Dublin. So life around the dinner table in Dublin was, you know, it was a pretty normal suburban life. You know, we, we lived in a housing estate, and we had friends, neighbours that we used to go and visit and stuff. So we used to eat lots of fish and chips and things like that, and it was it was a pretty pretty Irish culture. We didn't drink as much as a lot of Irish people, but you know, clearly as a kid, that didn't make much of a difference. Um, except my dad probably didn't have as many hangovers as, as other <laughs> fathers around. Um, we, uh, we 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 weren't so very strong about having like a ritual around dinner, um, and my dad was was traveling a lot, so. Um, it was kind of like, and there were three kids in the house. So My mom had me and my elder brother and sister, I was the youngest. And she also used to mind other children. So there were always other kids running around. So she was always quite busy, just, you know, taking care of everyone. And, and so we didn't have that kind of traditional, let's all sit down at the dinner table at six o'clock and eat dinner together type of Dinner. Uh, it was more like, okay, there's dinner on the table, go rush at it, you know, <laughs> eat it while it's hot. Um, if you don't eat it, someone else is going to eat it. So uh, one thing that I do remember from our life in Ireland is, and I don't know if this is something my parents engineered or just maybe we didn't actually have that much money at the time. We used to have like these tins of fruit there'd always be like one or two of those kind of like sweet cherries inside. Mm. And we used to like fight the three of us over who gets the <laughs> sweet cherry. Um, and I, I remember being like, looking back at that years later and be like, did we, could we not really afford two tins of fruit? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> or was it just just the way that we, we did things as a family? But then my life shifted very, very um, dramatically. Uh, when we moved to Africa, we moved when I was seven years old to a country called Lesotho, uh, which is a tiny country in the middle of South Africa. It's landlocked by South Africa. You'll, if you look on the map, you'll just see that there's like a little circle in the middle of South Africa, and you zoom in, it's called Lesotho. And um, the only real interesting thing about Lesotho, well, I shouldn't say that. Maybe the, the thing that it's known for is that it has the highest, lowest point of any country in the world. So basically, it's just all up in the mountains. Uh-huh. Um, beautiful, beautiful country, beautiful people. Um, but very much quite, you know, isolated. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's been able to hold its stronghold. I think the, the reason why it's a separate country from South Africa and didn't actually get engulfed by it was one, because it's all up in the mountains and two, because they had very strong chieftains who could actually maintain their territory. And they were able to have like a strong tribal culture that kept out the Zulu and the Oasa people. And so um, growing up in Lesotho was a fascinating experience. You know, there were things like, at one point, there was like a civil war going on with tanks driving around the streets and we had to like flee the country with helicopters flying above and um, people looting all the stores, you know. And, and so I have memories like that about the Sioux too. And that dinner table was a bit different because in that country, my dad was the he was the Irish consul general. So he was a diplomat. And so we had a beautiful house and we'd often have like guests over for dinner, like politicians and like world leaders and things like this. And that was quite an experience um, to be able to meet like famous people as a kid and, you know, hear them talking about world problems and, and, and and you know, them coming to Africa, obviously, usually from the perspective of aid, like how can we come and help these people and, but often also was quite interesting and revealing around the table where I'd be a child, you know, and this, I was between maybe ages of eight, nine, 10, 11. And I'd be hearing them talk about like, let's come and help the Africans kind of thing. And I'd be like, but they don't really know what they're talking about. Right. Mm. Like they've never lived here. They don't really understand the culture. They'd say things like, Oh, we should go and build this thing. Like build a, build a highway through whatever, you know, I'd be like, is that what the locals want, right? Like that's not actually what they need. Like they need food and, and, and water and, and hospitals and schools. And, and uh, so it was kind of just interesting as a child to kind of see that like very intelligent people out of context, didn't really necessarily have a good idea of what to do. But yet at the same time, you know, it was fascinating to grow up with a diversity of ideas around And I um, and very much, you know, that, that impacted my own development. Um, then, around 11 years old, I moved to a country called Mozambique, which is um, it, basically if you know where Madagascar is off the African coast, it's mm-hmm. like on the land next to Madagascar. It's a very long, thin country, beautiful coastline. And then again, my dad was the, he was a diplomat. So he was the Irish ambassador out there. And so I got a similar type of experience, got to meet a lot of very interesting people. But it all became very formal. And so, you know, that dinner table experience wasn't the kind of the, the homey sort of let's all sit around and you know uh talk about you know like what it is that we are well, like what happened during your day it was much more like let's sit around the dinner table and discuss politics or the state of the global economy or things like this and i mean i love that because i was quite an intellectual as a child and i i enjoyed that maybe more than a lot of kids would so I kind of you know sat at the dinner table and I'd be debating with these you know politicians on, you know what's the right way and well I wrote an economics paper on this and actually you know didn't you know that be, oh wow I didn't know that so you could actually like have proper conversations with them it was quite quite fun um, and then and then things got a bit difficult uh, because we just had some internal family troubles and My parents split, my parents got divorced when I was 11, and my mom went back to Ireland, my brother and sister both got sick, and so it was, it ended up being quite lonely at home, my dad was busy most of the time, so it was, the dinner table was like me, (laughs) by myself, eating, you know, at the time I loved just eating raw vegetables, so I'd be there by myself eating raw vegetables, and um, and so that was quite interesting, because what ended up happening was I just stopped spending time at home and I would go and stay with my friends and I just every day I'd be at a friend's house so I got to like stay with my Bolivian friends so around the dinner table was Bolivian culture they'd all be speaking Spanish right so I picked up Spanish you know my other friend is you know half Belgian half Lebanese and so I, so I kind of grew up in this kind of multicultural environment where I was parts of all these different families around me and um, that really shaped my viewpoint you know coming from an Irish background and then kind of coming into sort of like being split, my family being split and then being split into multiple households where I really would get very different opinions and perspectives on things. And I think that really helped me to form a, a non-judgmental perspective, let's say, where it's, it's very easy to come from a culture or a place and think that this is the way that things should be done. Uh, but to kind of grow up around so many different uh, perspectives really helped me to let go of that and kind of just adapt to the culture that I was in and that could be the culture of the country, but it could just be the culture of the dinner table and not assume that things should be done a certain way or said a certain way or something like that. So, you know, I kind of, I look back now and I in some ways I kind of miss not having what I see when I watch movies, like all sit around the dinner table and, you know, talk about your daily life. But in other ways, I feel like I was given many gifts that have given me very different perspectives. And that is, that has helped me in my life and my work.
0: Wow. What a, what a fascinating answer. And th- there's some, I could probably just have a podcast alone on <laughs> Fion's dinner table experiences, <laughs> but among all the different areas I could go from there, all the different directions I feel pulled to the one that stood out the most is what you circled back to at the end was that there were all these policymakers or influential, important people who had, their viewpoint on like, it's clear that they had some sort of passion about making a change in an area that maybe was, it didn't have the same privilege as where they came from, but they were projecting, it sounds like their own, like what was in their context, what would have been useful into a completely different environment and context. And I guess my question is twofold. Was that something that you were aware of as a kid like did that was that intuitively true to you that they they were bringing in their own stuff and that it wouldn't have worked in say africa when they were from ireland and like is that more of a hindsight thing and if it was true as a kid like what what do you think helped you uh have that sort of awareness because it sounds like you almost it was, it was there already without you having to think about it?
1: Yeah, um, it's, it's a wonderful question. And I appreciate the kind of the meta reflection on it now, you know, thinking, about it, you know, thinking about it, thinking about thinking about it. There was certainly a certain amount of awareness there, but I, I think that through the things that I've studied and the expertise that I've gained, I've, I've gained more insight into that now. So there was something there at the time, And I've now kind of built upon that and built, you know, in terms of the research that I've read or the research that I've done myself or the conversations that I've had. So I think at the time there was an awareness that something didn't quite fit. Um, There was something strange about being a foreigner in a place like Africa and seeing people who thought that they knew what Africa needed without really even consulting the locals there was something strange about that I didn't quite understand at the time I now I feel like I could explain it a lot better and I'll maybe use developmental language to do that later but at the time it was like you know because one of the things that my mom you know did which really I have so much admiration for her for doing at the time was you know when we lived in Lesotho she would spend most of her days at at the local orphanage um, taking care of children who, you know, in Africa at that time, still to this day, but, you know, it was probably worse in those days that there were a, a lot of adults dying of AIDS. And so there were a lot of children left behind. And, you know, with proper childbirth practices, usually, you know, AIDS doesn't get passed on. But in a country like that, where you don't necessarily have, uh, you know, a strong medical system, A lot of the children would have AIDS, like from the time they were born. And there was something so sad about that, about the whole situation, about me being in a country where I was supposed to be there to help or our family was supposed to be there to help. But I also saw how privileged I was, right? Like we lived in a big house and these children were basically homeless, right? Mm -hmm. We had you know, multiple, you know, whether it's like a guard at the gate, because you need that in many countries in Africa to be safe, gardener, because we had a big garden, a maid, multiple maid, maybe a maid and a cook, you know, and it it kind of, there was kind of almost like an unfairness about it, like, kind of like, we're here to help. But I understand that maybe we wouldn't come or we wouldn't get a lot of people to come unless there was some sort of privilege to it, because it's not an easy thing. Like you get missionaries who maybe go out into the bush and stuff. But that's probably not something you would necessarily bring small kids, you know, like I was at the time along to do. And so, you know, watching that there was kind of like, even just within our situation, not even hearing these other people, there was just something strange because we had a big fence around our house and, you know, there were like poor people around and it was kind of like, but we can't help everyone. Right. But we're trying to help. And I know my dad's responsible for a big budget and trying to sort of do eight projects, but and, and I think my, during that time, my own understanding of it changed over time. So like within those few years that I was, that I was there where my dad, I think, started off very optimistic about, oh, let's, you know, I can come in because he actually, he'd been to Africa before. He lived very much like a missionary in the bush in Zimbabwe uh, back how many years ago now, but 40, 40 years ago now, and he lived with the locals, liked the locals, and helped them because he grew up on a farm in Ireland. So he was literally helping them learn how to farm, how to do agriculture. And so he he had that real touch with the local community. And he, he was very, very integrative in that he would always integrate into the culture and become very close with the people. And that was one of the things I really admired about him is when he would go into these countries Um, A lot of the foreigners would say, okay, like hire more foreigners to come in and do everything. And he'd be like, no, by the time I leave here, I want all the foreigners to be gone. I want only locals in this office. And so he would essentially over time kind of like fire all the foreigners and hire all locals to replace them and set it up so they would be self-sustainable. Now you can't, I don't know if it's can't, but usually you would have the ambassador or the person at the top is the representative from the country. So you can't get rid of everyone, but but for the most part, he would replace most of the foreign staff with the local staff. And, and I, he used to explain that to me when I was younger. I was like, yeah, that makes sense. You know, like, we don't want to just come in here and and make them dependent, you know, or or not give them the tools that they need to actually get rid of us or whatever, you know. And you do, you, you've seen that in multiple African countries, like in Zimbabwe, where they essentially just eventually kicked out all the whites, you know, or in South Africa, where there still is that animosity between you know, different, different colors. And so there was something about that, you know, where I was watching him and I was hearing him and I heard his tone kind of change over the years where he went from being like, oh yeah, like I'm really happy to be here and I want to be able to support. And, you know, we got to visit all these potential projects that he could do. And then near the end, he was kind of like, this is not working, you know, like we're trying, I've been trying so hard to build things that is actually, that are sustainable and useful and at the end of the day the only projects that get fund are the pro- funded are the projects that people in the west can pat themselves on the back about you know mm. like oh we did this thing and we feel good about it but if you go back to the project like five years later like maybe they've gone out into the middle of nowhere and they've drilled a well down in the ground uh, which sounds like that's a good thing because people need water right but he says like you come back five years later and you look and you say you like ask the villagers, oh, you know, how like how's your well going? That thing that we built for you five years ago, and they'd be like, what well? And you'd be like, oh, well, like the, you know, we came in, we drilled the hole, you know, we set up the whole thing, and they'd be like, oh yeah, yeah, we remember, we remember it. that happened, yeah, a long time ago, and then he'd be like, well, what 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 happened to it? And they'd say something like, oh yeah, like a few weeks after you built it, like one of the one of the bolts on one of the tools that was used to like, wrench up the water out of the well, like broke. And we don't have any engineers around here. So we don't actually know anyone who uses any of those tools and we don't have any of those tools. So nobody could fix it. So we just left it. <laughs> you know? yeah. So at the same back to the same problem again, they were still walking like 20 kilometers down the road to get like a, a, a bucket of water that they had to carry for another 20 kilometers back to their house. And at the end of the day, there'd been all this money spent, which was just a waste, uh, essentially. So, I mean, you know, you do find projects that are slightly more sustainable than that, but that's kind of a caricature of the the situation where Western powers go in and think they're doing wonderful things with charity and NGOs and all that. And at the end of the day, it's not necessarily what the locals need or want. And, And so I heard stories like that as a kid, and I understood that as a kid. But then later on, I I got more interested in understanding global development and understanding, you know, that different countries operate at different stages of development. Like if we look at, for example, just on a global scale, we like, it's pretty clear that some countries have more, more culturally developed societies, you know, from the perspective of, you know, having safety nets for their people. Like if we look at Scandinavia or like in New Zealand or Switzerland or places like this, in terms of like a human development index, you know, they're, they're, People have good access to education and healthcare, and you know there are safety nets in place, and um, and there's kind of a general culture around sustainability and taking care of the, the the environment, and you know actually maybe moving a little bit more towards like whole child education and not just all about performance. Whereas we look, if we look at some of the least developed countries, and so for example, countries that I grew up in in Africa, you know people very much are not assured like food or water or schooling or healthcare or any of that. Um, so the systems aren't there. But beyond that, there's, there's kind of like a, a a cultural, a cultural development that is different. Where the people, it's like if you're familiar with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the people are very much living, you know, day to day and it's about survival. You know, that's a generalization because clearly not everyone in the country is like that, but a lot of the people are and that's different than in a developed country where people you know have their basic needs met and they can they can focus on you know towards their self actualization and the work the work that they want to do in the world and and so so that's one of the things that now has helped me to look back and reflect and understand that oh so if you have a culture that is you know got different developmental values uh, about what's important like if we talk about whole child education sustainability these kind of things and you go into a country where basically what they need is at the very bottom rung of Maslow's hierarchy, they need like food and shelter and water. And there's going to be a bit of a mismatch of what it is that the country who is giving thinks that should be given versus what the country is wanting. And that's one of the things that happens on that global scale. And, and, but beyond that, there's the whole you know, collective trauma around colonialism mm-hmm. and how the West you know, essentially invaded Africa, whether it's slavery or um, the different colonial powers, and 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 carved Africa up, you know, uh, like a puzzle, and decided what countries were whose, and split tribes down the middle, and you know, and 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 put systems on top of of those countries, you know, which many of them, like Mozambique, is an example of where where I grew up is a Portuguese, was a Portuguese colony, and when the Portuguese left, they basically destroyed everything, right? There was like an anger that they were getting kicked out of someone else's country, and they literally destroyed, like there's, when I was living there, there was kind of like a final last uh, hotel that was left standing from the Portuguese times, but it had never been completed It's beautiful tall hotel hotels one of the biggest uh buildings in the country but it was still like a concrete shell because what happened was when the Portuguese left they filled the elevator shafts with concrete so the whole hotel was useless so they never developed it they never built it and I remember my house was right beside it and they uh literally demolished it um they blew it up uh when I was living there and 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 uh, it was such a an image to watch these two huge the whole building fell and there were these two huge pillars of just concrete standing like 25 floors in the sky and they slowly just fell sideways because they couldn't be demolished. They're like pure concrete the whole way up. So there are things like that where it's like, you know, we think we come in and oh, we're here with with civilization and s- things to teach you. But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of it is just selfishness and you know, like us coming in to tell others what they should be doing. And even the modern day sort of like NGO, we're here to help you type thing. If you actually look into it, a lot of it is just like, let's pat ourselves on the back for doing a good job and helping those who are needy, as opposed to actually making sustainable change. So that, that perspective is a kind of a later one that I've developed by looking back
0: later in life. Mm-hmm. So before we get into the stages of development, I'm interested. So like, I'm a young coach, I haven't been doing it for a long time. But one of the reasons I got into this was like, I'm guilty of a lot of what you're describing, right? I want to, I almost want to fix or save people a lot of the time, instead of taking the time to understand where are they at. And even that can be overwhelming to look at like if i walk outside and i pass someone on the street who is homeless i my heart really aches for that person and i want to do something to save them and that can sometimes lead to personal overwhelm and shutdown and a helplessness of like what you know what difference can i really make and you're you're talking about this at countrywide continental like global levels. And I'm imagining that at for any person at any age, that is a lot to get your arms around and to feel like, you know, what's th- there, there can be a really quickly a development of like, this is all meaningless. Like, what the hell am I supposed to do with all this? And it seems it seems like you are able to stay grounded in I don't know. There's a there's a presence about you that's like I you you can take a step back and see everything with some sort of clarity, and are able to step in and say this is a difference that I know I can make. I'm not going to try and overextend myself past this, but I do know how to help. So I'm wondering, and maybe we can go into stages of development from there, like how has that overlaid over you being able to make a difference in these things that seem so overwhelming, where I think most people like look at something painful and run away from it, myself included a lot of times. And it's so it's challenging to look at all the suffering that's going on in the world and think like, yeah, yeah I can make a difference. So how I guess we'll, we'll start with like, how have you stayed grounded in your approach to making some sort of difference in the world. And then we can go into stages of development from there.
1: Wow. Beautiful question. Let me take a step back. Yeah, (laughs) sure. Um, And, you know, as I'm sitting here, I'm now sort of, you know, reworking my chair and getting comfortable, you know, just to sort of sit with that question for a little while and not pretend like I have an answer ready, made. Yes, I don't you know, like here, letting myself relax into my body, taking a few deep breaths. Mm. So, you know, we can, we can try and put things in simple boxes, but reality is both so complex and in some ways so simple, there's a, there's a paradox there. There's a contradiction. And know i would like to be able to say like a point to one time in my life often people talk about like an awakening experience or something like that And it's like nah there's nothing like that really for me um i've had many kind of mini experiences that i think have really helped me on my journey and if that's something that you know i would say i might say it's been a very gradual process you know of looking out at the world understanding what's going on looking into myself trying to build that self-awareness, you know, understand who I am in relation to what's out there and then just doing that again and again, like on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I love the the title of your podcast, the search for meaning, uh, because it's, it's, you know, it's not like you found the meaning, (laughs) you know, anyone who's, you know, tells you that they've got it all figured out. um, You know, I would maybe recommend that you run the opposite direction because it's, you know, I, 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 it is that, that continual journey of being open to what is coming, to what is emerging, to, to what could be, to who I might be. That question of who am I is not necessarily one to be answered, mm-hmm. uh, but one to be keep asking yourself um, and rediscovering uh, again and again. And so when I look back on my journey, you know, I would say that those those younger years traveling around the world with my family gave me a sense of, I mean, it was, in some ways it was difficult because a lot of people have a home, right? Like this place they can go back to. And for me, there never really was a home because we were always moving. And and it, it, at, at some point I kind of got more comfortable with moving than I did with staying put. Um, there were periods in my life, like when I was you know, university times where I wouldn't actually spend that much time at university. And every few months, I'd be in a new country just traveling around the world. And um, in many ways, there was, you know, many privileges that came with that. But it also, it, it, it created this sense of being a, a being of this planet, you know, if that kind of makes sense. Yeah. Right. I think a lot of us, you know, maybe grow up in a community and, and but then, Usually if we go off to maybe your high school is in a different city or something, you know, oh, you realize, oh, it's kind of different over here. Or then maybe you go to university and the university is in a in a different country, maybe or, or across the country or something like that. And you're like, oh, wow, people around here don't think the way that they thought back where I'm from. And that means that the things that I thought that were true are not necessarily true. And so you begin to question and I feel like I was exposed to that at maybe a younger age, where I just start to question things like, like history in school. You know, we think it's like history is history, right? It's like, well, no, it depends which country you're from. <laughs> uh, uh, China has a very different history than Japan, right? In fact, in many ways, they're almost opposite. Versus, you know, like I'm Irish, and so Irish versus English history about what actually happened in terms of the English coming over to our country, and uh, what they did, and you know, African history. In Africa versus Western history about Africa, right? Like slavery and colonialism and those kinds of things, which are like things of the past. And it's like, well, are they really things of the past? You know, um, I mean, the cultural trauma still lives on, and in many ways, the, the you know the rights were the wrongs were not righted, and you know we're 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 living that in that today. And so for me in my own personal journey, then as I of went out into the world i guess i was lucky in many ways in that i i i saw my father coaching from a young age he actually wanted to be a coach he wanted to set up a business for coaching when he was in his early 20s but back in those days there was no such thing as coaching except maybe in sports so you know his his mission in life was to help people figure out what they wanted to do with their lives and to um help them you know move in that direction um, and he, he did it in the companies that he built, in the organizations that he grew. And I got to watch that growing up. You know, he was on, in, on one side, he was a diplomat. On the other side, he was building businesses on the side. And that was kind of eventually where he went because he he was seeing that if you if you drop money on a country in terms of like charities or global aid, most of it just gets sucked up by the corruption of the politicians. But if you actually build businesses on the ground, you're like hiring people who then have money to send their children to school and those children then in the next generation might get to travel to you know another country which they can bring back to. So it, he felt like that was actually much more valuable thing to do was to integrate into the community and watching him do that was really inspiring for me as a child to see oh wow like he's, he would he would like hire people, coach them to the point where they were ready to set up their own business. And then he'd be like, now I'm firing you. So you can go and run your own business. <laughs> and, or like, no, now you need to go and like, and he would have employees that would go and study at Harvard or things like this, you know? And so I kind of saw him doing that from a young age. And I was like, "Oh, that's, that's, that's something I want to be able to help people do, do too. So I started coaching at a very young age and that gave me an orientation towards myself, right? Like thinking about how can I help others? I, I, I can't really help others that much if I don't really know how to help myself first. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of like turning that mirror on myself. And like you were talking about earlier in terms of projecting on others, mm-hmm. it's like, well, you know, what, what does it really mean to support other people in their lives? And at the beginning, I think it was very much an approach of, uh, you know, I, I have some ideas and I think these will be useful for other people. And I would share with them them with some people and some people would find them useful. And I, you know, started my coaching practice like that. But over time it kind of became less and less about me sharing ideas with people. And it became more and more about me holding space for people to figure out their own stuff and bringing in as little as me, as little of me as I could, or that was necessary to hold the space and that really depends on, you know, what the person's looking for and uh, what kind of where they are in their life and what it is that they're needing and wanting. And because, you know, some of my coaching clients, they just want an ear to, you know, share. And some of my coaching clients really do want very focused feedback. Some of them want to hear a bit about my story and things that I've learned along the way. Some of them want me to guide them through different processes, you know, different types of whether it's guided meditations or different types of you know, deep inner exploratory exercises, things like this. But they also don't necessarily know that when they when they arrive in the space. Yeah. They just you know, know that I might be able to support them in some way. And so I, I guess that's, that's, that's what leads me to the question of development. Like what does it mean to develop oneself? What does it mean to develop others? Can we even develop other people or are we just facilitating their own personal development?
0: Mm.
1: And as I got deeper into that question of development, like how do we actually develop ourselves and those around us, I started to get really curious about, like, surely surely people have researched this, surely people have figured out some of this stuff. And so, you know, in my early, in my early uh, coaching days, I read a lot of psychology books. I read every single one of Freud's books, most of Jung's books. So kind of looking at the classical psychology stuff and then kind of working my way up to kind of modern psychology, you know, I studied NLP and uh, neuro-linguistic programming and mm-hmm. which is kind of like a ma- amalgamation of a variety of different modalities. And, you know, then, you know, got into more like somatic based. So like based yeah. in the body, understanding, mm-hmm. you know, what's coming up in the body, mindfulness based, just staying present and seeing what's coming up in the moment and then studied a bunch of different awareness practices, you know, meditations. I teach over 50 types of meditation now. And as I was going through that process, it it became clearer and clearer to me that there's, there's different people that are operating at different developmental perspectives. And this is, it's very easy to see in childhood, right? So, you know, for those who have, you know, young siblings or children out there that are listening, You know, you you see it very easy with kids. You have your baby, right? And the baby is an infant uh, where they're completely dependent and they can't feed themselves. They can't take care of themselves in terms of, you know, going to the toilet or anything. They're completely dependent. They're just receptive. They're just open to the world. In fact, they don't even realize that they're a separate self until they start like biting a toy and then biting their finger and realizing that one of those hurts. And oh, then this must be part of me but this is not and so they begin to develop this sense of self and that's when this next stage comes up and it's usually termed the terrible twos when it arises its ugly head um, because children you know start running around and grabbing things and getting what they want not just waiting for it to come to them and at that point that's where parents you know need to set healthy boundaries and keep the children safe you know Um, giving them enough freedom for them to explore but not too much freedom where they'll get themselves hurt and that that stage usually lasts up until about you know five years old or so different developmental researchers will break it up slightly differently Um, you know you 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 can look at like piaget's research or eric erickson some of the more traditional psychological researchers in the developmental space and then around around so so from around five years old five six years old we start to understand that it's not just about me. It's not just about everything is mine. It's that actually there's other there's other me's out there. Like, oh, like you're a me. Oh, you, you have a me just like I have a me. And they start to understand this. And then they begin to realize that, oh, you know, maybe it's actually more valuable to have a friend than it is to have a toy. So I'm actually willing to share now. Like, I'll give you a toy and you might not actually give me anything immediately, but you might give me something later. So I'm actually happy to share with you. Um, and so we go through this stage now where we build relationships, and it's a, the relational stage. And you know, parental relationships are so important here where we have someone that we look up to and we learn from, who sets the rules for us and helps us learn what are these social constructions of the way that, you know we should or should not do things. And you know if we if we do something that we're not supposed to do, we feel ashamed of ourselves, but only if someone's looking. And if someone's not looking, we don't feel ashamed of ourselves because we can get away with it. Um, but then around 11 years old, that shifts and that changes. And uh, we actually start to feel guilty if we do something that we shouldn't do when there's nobody watching. So we've internalized that principle or that rule as something that, like, Oh, I'm the kind of person who, or we are the kind of family who, or it doesn't have to be a family, it could be a community, like we Christians don't do that, or we, we, we Chinese people don't do that, right? There's a sort of like a, a, a collective, a we that I'm, I feel like I'm a part of, and we agree that, you know, that's the, not the kind of thing that we do. But it could also be that I'm a rebel and I'm not interested in being part of the, you know, the norms of the way that, you know, most people are supposed to do things. And I'm part of a gang, right. And in in my gang, we wreck shit and we break things and we (laughs) take drugs and we, but I'm still part of this. We, right. It's just a different we. It's a, it's a rebellious we, And so, you know, we, we, we grow up through that stage and, you know, that stage, you know, it's, it's, it starts for most people, you know, around the age, I mean, it depends on the individual, but somewhere in the realm of around 11, 12 years old. And for some people, that's the stage where they stay in adulthood, right? It's still about, you know, maybe they're fundamentally religious, and, you know, there's an authority figure, and that authority figure is the law, you know, the rule, and we just follow, and we don't question, and we just, you know, in fact, you know, it, it, there's, there's, there's more and more research to to show you know, what we are like as a global species. But it looks like most adults on planet Earth are still you know, operating around that stage of development. But if we if we look at, and it's easier to see in, in the more developed countries, and I think in largely in part to the due to the education systems, because if we head off to university and we become an expert in something, usually we'll pop up into the next developmental stage. Um, which is really it's about expertise. It's about being a specialist in something. It's about I know or I think or I feel differently than other people. You know, I can, I can see things in a different way or, you know, I don't just follow the group. I can actually, you know, come up with my own ideas about things that are, you know, different than what other people come up with. And, and in many professions, this is, you know, you can be a very high level surgeon, you know, or or, 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 or lawyer or accountant or, you know, any other kind of the technical professions an engineer um, at this stage of development. And you can be very, very successful. you just, you're, you're a technical expert and you're very, very good at what you do. Um, and often, you know, uh, even a perfectionist, like you just get in, down into detail and you're really good at that. And in, in some professions, that's really important. Maybe you, you probably want your surgeon to be a perfectionist, right? Because they're <laughs> gonna do the surgery properly, yeah. right? Uh, But what we find is that um, if you want to be able to build a team or you want to be able to be a leader of a group, let's say, and, and drive them towards a goal, then there seems to be a necessary transition, which is moving towards, you know, not just expertise, but moving towards achievement, moving towards like, I can have a vision of something and I can move towards that vision. I can amass resources and people and a bunch of experts to work together towards a vision. And this is actually where we get a lot of kind of global leaders, a lot of CEOs, um, even probably most kind of global political leaders out there where they, you know, they have a vision of where they wanna go. Uh, they can think you know, a few years in, in, in the future, they can come up with a strategy and they can you know, drive people towards that vision. The problem is in the current world that we live in, the world is moving so fast you know, it's like the VUCA environment, the volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous environment that we live in, that's might not be enough anymore, in order for us to be able to move and change, because things are changing so rapidly, that if I come up with a plan, it's almost obsolete as soon as I've created it. So how do I adapt with the times? How do I keep in consideration the global dynamics the environmental problems of climate change and the emerging technologies and social media and automation and ai and you know the fact that we're now a globalizing world and covid and wow like all these different variables the achiever mind kind of gets a bit stuck with that and so that's where this next stage of development comes out which is the capacity to see from multiple different perspectives right to be able to understand other people's perspectives are just as valid as my perspectives. You know, I might have a useful way of looking at something and someone might have a completely opposite way of looking at something and their way of looking at it might be just as useful or valid as my way of looking at it. And so from that perspective, then usually we begin to understand that, oh, you know, like if I'm in a privileged position, it's partially just because either I grew up in a privileged family or in a privileged country, or I was given a privilege by someone along the way, or, you know, it's the, the world is more complex and systemic and there's ecosystems and all these ecosystems and systems interact with each other to create the world that we live in. And so I begin to realize that, wow, you know, those people who are, you know, maybe underprivileged you know whether they're having difficult living circumstances maybe you know those in another country who grew up in a country that didn't have access to resources or those in my country who maybe just you know didn't didn't get the same kind of education that you know I did or didn't you know so I start to really think about wow you know whether it's minorities or you know underprivileged people how can I support right because because I was given privileges and they might not have been. So how can I go and help? But we also start to think about the the environment and, oh, wow, what are we doing to our planet, right? Like we perform and we achieve and we grow these companies and, you know, it's all grow, 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 grow. But if we keep growing, like this whole planet is going to heat up or, you know, fall apart or all sorts of different things, or at least the human systems will, Um, the planet itself, you know, might, might, uh, might uh, get rid of us at some point and return to its natural homeostasis. But, you know, uh, humanity staying here is not, not uh, guaranteed. And so we begin to think about these problems and we realize that there's these kind of systemic approaches to things, that it's not just about coming up with a plan and a goal, but I can actually see things from a global systemic view. And I understand that all these systems are interacting and everything is actually interconnected. And if we pull one system over here, it affects another system over here. That stage helps us to see that global view, but it doesn't necessarily help us to do anything about it. So often people in this stage, they see all of this, but they don't know what to do about it. And in fact, it can be a bit overwhelming because they can see all the global systems, but they don't necessarily feel like they can actually influence them. And that's where the next stage comes up which is, you know, you might have heard of integral theory, right, That's called integral stage of development, where you can not only see all these systems of systems of systems, but you can actually see how you can influence certain systems that will then influence other systems that will then influence other systems. And so this is why you begin to understand that, ah, we're all operating at different developmental stages, you know, us as individuals, as families, as organizations, as countries, as a species, you know, we all have a certain developmental stage. And now that we're aware of that, we can actually tailor our approach to each developmental stage that we're seeing, right? If we're working with an individual, like I have children, right? There's certain, you know, I have a six year old and an eight year old, and it's a slightly different approach for each of for each of them. But it's, you know, then it's also a different approach to my nephew who's 15, a different developmental stage, different approach to, you know, someone who might be in university, different approach to, you know, a professional out there, different approach to a business leader, different approach to, you know, someone who's running an NGO, different approach to an integral, you know, thinker. And that if I am then tailoring my approach, now I can actually be much more effective, which is what I wanted to be as an achiever, but was kind of failing to do. Um, I can now actually see across contexts and I can understand the context that I'm in and I can choose to behave or act or think or be a certain way in that context to meet the needs of that context. And so this is where you'll actually get, um, I mean, you do get some entrepreneurs and business leaders and we're seeing more and more businesses around the world that are popping up at later stages of development. Um, There's a fascinating book called Reinventing Organizations that actually you know, takes a, a, a bunch of examples from around the world of organizations that are run by integral thinkers. And, you know, they're, they're, they, the concept is like the average business is is an achiever business, and it's mostly about bottom line, like profit. Mm-hmm. The kind of the next stage, which is these kind of ecosystems, green stage, uh, is about like, and often they'll be NGOs, it's just about giving back, right, like helping others. But then the, the next stage is what we call teal, teal organizations. They They kind of look at, you know, purpose before profit. Our purpose is more important than profit, but profit's still important because it creates a sustainable system that can be regenerated. And so coming up with an organization, either the structure where you let the people manage themselves or, you know, where you look at the evolutionary purpose and what it is that the kind of impact that you'd like to have in the world, or looking at it in terms of the actual employees that you have in the company and how you can actually create an environment where you can support their development um, by them just coming to work. And so we're seeing a new paradigm coming out in the business world, but often what you'll find is people who are kind of at some of these later developmental stages, they'll be consultants or coaches or therapists, or they'll almost have like a bit of a meta view um, and kind of come in and support in different capacities in different areas but we're seeing a, a larger and larger variety of different people operating at these stages. Now, we have four more stages beyond that, that we have research on that are validated, um, but there's so few people that operate at those stages that it, uh, we don't actually know what collectives look like at those stages yet. We, we only really have you know, uh, uh, random individuals, occasional individuals uh, at these, at these late, latest developmental stages that we have research for.
0: So are there offhand, do you know, a couple of teal organizations just, and maybe, maybe something that's recognizable for the listener. I'd I'd be really interested to know. And then, and then from there, I'll drill down more into the, like when you're person to person with someone, like what are the markers for what, like, what are you looking for? What are, what's the way that they're speaking or the way that they're acting that indicates maybe on a, a quick surface level, like, where are they in their development? But before that, are there a couple of teal organizations that come to mind?
1: Yeah, probably the most famous one is Patagonia. You know, it's you know, the the clothing brand which is is saving rainforests in South America and is, you know, approaching, you know, uh, like the way that they they package their goods, you know, all very sustainable. You know, the way that the whole organization runs is really about living their purpose, right? If they're not living their purpose, they would prefer shut down than continue as a business entity. And you see that from the, the founder, Yves Shoina, who wrote the book, uh, Let My People Go Surfing, um, who really, you know, walks the talk and lives this. And it is really about that. Patagonia is not a business to make money. Patagonia is a vehicle to create change in the world. And so you we, we see that with other organizations out there. That's probably the most famous example. We, we say other, there's, a, there's a fascinating guy based in Brazil called Ricardo Semler, who wrote a book called Maverick. I think it was back in 93 or something like this. So this is like a while back. Mm-hmm. And um, he, he basically took uh, the father for, the business from his father and basically said, I'm giving it to the employees. And he, he let everyone decide when they wanted to work, where they wanted to work from, how much they got paid, like everything, he just let them decide. And, you know, this isn't kind of like a sexy industry like Patagonia. Um, he they do like some mechanical parts or something like that. It's it's uh it's a different type of company, but he's still been able to, to implement it there. Another example is a fascinating example in uh, in Europe. I can't remember is it is it the Netherlands or Denmark? Um, there's a company called Burtzorg, which is uh, a company for uh, nurses that travel around to people's homes and help them. Um, and it's it's basically, you know, run by the nurses, right? There's no real leadership structure. Um, they all get to manage themselves. They get to make their own decisions. They support each other. It's a beautiful community. And the challenge that they were facing is that, you know, the nurses that were working in previous organizations, they were like forced down to the minute, to like record the time and do every patient as quickly as possible. And they were, you know, realizing that this is not how you do nursing, this is not how you help people. So they created this organization. And essentially, what has happened is, by spending more time with each patient, by getting to know them individually as people by spending, you know, uh, sitting down and having coffee with them, they get to know who they are, they get to know what their problems are, they get to understand what's really going on. And then, you know, they can help them create solutions. So they realize, oh, this old person actually needs a bit of support. Let me go over to the neighbor next door and ask them to come over and check on them occasionally. Or they figure out that, oh, you know, um, maybe they're a bit estranged from their kids and they don't really know how to communicate. So they're like, help them, you know, build a relationship with their kids. So their kids actually come and, you know, take care of them once in a while or, you know, and these kind of things. And what they found is after a while that These people ended up being healthier, they got less sick, they were sick for less time, like all this kind of stuff. It was incredible to see what kind of a difference that human touch made. So that's another example. You know, another one that I'm slightly hesitant to put on the list, but is certainly moving in that direction. And the reason I'm hesitant to put on the list is just because of the way in which it operates. And it kind of on the outside, I think, looks quite like a traditional mega corporation, but the the way in which the founder is purpose-driven I think changes things and that is that is pretty much anything that Elon Musk creates. Um, you know like he's talking about the multiplanetary species he's obviously seeing things from a systemic systemic you know perspective he's looking long term for humanity and he's trying to build something that is essentially going to safeguard you know our species. Um, now w- one of the reasons that I would maybe question a little bit is you know just in terms of the, the lacking of um, the human touch uh, so to speak like he works super hard and he pushes his people super hard and you know I kind of also get it and that you know these are global problems that you know are, are important to work on but uh, you know there's there's certain management practices that I think that could be slightly different in, in some of those organizations but I think that's moving in that direction is how do we actually create organizations that are going to support the future of our species? And I think he's doing that. So that's another one that I would say is 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 certainly moving in that direction. Beautiful. Yeah. Um, Thanks for that. Yeah. And and then and then, you know, moving beyond that, if we think about, you know, other other examples out there, I would say that, you know, we're seeing new ecosystems developing, you know, that have never really been seen before. We're seeing it in the cryptocurrency world. We're seeing kind of things pop up so fast now, like the NFT world, like the, on the internet, you can build a business in minutes on the internet. And so I think we're seeing these entirely new ecosystems forming in whether we want to call it the metaverse or whatever, that are allowing for these kinds of organizations to be built and disintegrate fast. So it's almost like there's new forms coming out that we don't quite have a handle on. And there's some interesting people out there that are, that are developing these kinds of communities. You know, there's some interesting podcasts out there and communities developing around those podcasts or, or people with just some interesting ideas. You know, I think if you look at, there's a few terms that I find useful to find some of these people. Um, there's the meta-modernists, right? Which is, you know, they, they look at it from a slightly political lens of, you know, looking at things from that level. In Europe, there's a community called Emerge that is emerging. And uh, Thomas Bjorkman is an interesting person in that space. There's the whole integral community, which was, you know, probably pioneered by Ken Wilber, and has now kind of become a, a beast of its own. But, you know, it, it kind of fundamentally based around his, his model of development. We have podcasts like Rebel Wisdom, The Stoa, other, other people out there that are, you know, pioneering some ideas like Game B, which is, you know, we're currently all living in Game A, and Game A is driving towards destruction of our planet. So let's play a different game that is actually going to, you know, create a sustainable, regenerative, you know, planet that operates on the principle of wholeness. And so, in that way, we're seeing some of these new communities, collectives—I don't even know if I'd call them organizations—that are developing, that are that
0: are certainly operating from these kinds of stages of development. And the, so, the second part of that is and you can we can use me as an example maybe because you you don't know me well so like maybe you'd be able to tell this would be an interesting experiment but I'm interested in like someone shows up to your door and says like I want to be coached and you're taking a step back and you know you're trying to size up like where is this person in their development what would you be looking for in that person and yeah, like, let's make it tangible. We, we haven't spoken very much. So like, what have you, based on the way that I'm speaking, where would you, what would you point to as markers of like, this is where Michael might be in his development?
1: Yeah, so I'll share a bit of a framework first, and then we'll do a bit okay. of an exercise and I'll, I'll, I'll bring you through the process. Great. So what, one of the ways that we can begin to notice development is in understanding the way that people use language. So to, to somewhat oversimplify the more complex the language that we use, the more developed we seem to be. And this is just based on the research that shows us that certain stages come after other stages. And so there's a certain amount that is needed to be built in one stage that you then need to build on another stage for that stage to be strong enough to build on another stage. And so there are certain types of words that are indicators or markers, like you mentioned, of certain developmental stages. And so based on the type of language that we're using, we can begin to be able to slot those markers into different developmental stages. Now, a few caveats. One is we all operate from a a variety of developmental stages. So this is something that isn't often talked about in the community because we often think, oh, this this person is at that stage or this organization is at that stage or whatever. But the reality is that we all operate from multiple stages, and it depends on the context that we're in, um, depends on whether or not we have developmental capacities in one context versus another context, uh, depends on the emotional state that we're in, depends on our, you know, uh, So Ken Wilber talked about different lines of development. So we could talk about a cognitive line or an emotional line or a relational line or a spiritual line or whatever. And that we have these different lines where we might be like, for example, you know, uh, I'm gonna make a bit of a generalization here, but you know, generalizations are sometimes useful. And that is like, for example, often you'll get mostly male and maybe even skewed towards Caucasian male who are maybe cognitively quite developed but maybe emotionally very underdeveloped Mm -hmm. and so what you'll find is that they might be using very complex language but when you talk for example about their inner world or how they express you know their their emotional experience you'll see them operating a very different developmental level so and and the same could maybe be be true of the opposite way around where you you have different different people of whether it's different genders or different cultures or depending on the culture that you grew up in you know some cultures are very emotionally expressive and some cultures are much more kind of direct and you know it's all about hard logic and rationality and all of this so part of that is the culture or the the context that we grew up in and part of it is also partially you know genetic um, you know, like we know things like, you know, IQ or influenced by genetics, you know, development is another thing that seems to be influenced by genetics. So with that in mind, one of the things that I will say about development is because we operate from multiple stages, there's a there's a flow even in our speech. So for example, even within one sentence, we might be operating from multiple stages. Now that gets a bit complex quite fast, because we could say, okay, well then how do you really determine what developmental stage someone is coming from? And so that's where we talk about uh, a center of gravity. Mm-hmm. And so a center of gravity means that this is maybe where we spend most of our time, right? Where we we seem to have, you know, m- most of our language coming from this developmental stage, or we spend most of our experience, you know, operating this developmental stage. Now, uh, Maybe above or expanded beyond the center of gravity, we might have our leading edge, of like what are the most you know uh, uh, developmentally complex or developmentally expansive uh, stages that we have access to, and then we have what we call the the trailing edge, which is you know the 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 places where we can tend to drop to pretty regularly that are kind of like not quite as developed as our center of gravity, but um, you know where we where we might also spend maybe a significant amount of our time. Now, beyond that, we also have what we call shadows. And so shadows are things that might be much earlier developmental uh, patterns that still exist in our consciousness um, that come out, like when we get triggered, uh, when we regress at certain times. And so in essence, we have all of the developmental stages within us up to the developmental stage that we're at but we don't necessarily operate very often from the earliest stages of development. So with that context in place, um, what we can do is, I'd love if you can uh, share with me and I'll, I'll get you to share with me from a few different contexts. So okay. I, want, I want you to share with me a little about your, your family life. So you know, whether that's family of origin you know, or you know, siblings or, or if you're married or whatever, that's all fine your uh, your work life, and your personal life. Let's start with those three, right? So we have your family life, your work life, and your personal life. So maybe just tell me a little about yourself in each of those spaces.
0: Is there like a time bound, like should I spend a certain amount of time doing each of these? I know we're like um, in the interests of time of the podcast in general. Yeah, but... so,
1: so let's say somewhere between one to three minutes on each topic.
0: Sure. Okay. So this, this feels like a turnaround to me with the dinner table question on, yeah, go for it. on family. So my family was very much a, an emotion and is a very emotionally evolved family. So both of my parents have been in therapy for the entire duration of my life, 30 plus years. And uh, it was always, when I envisioned the dinner table, I always envision a safe place where I could bring. So there's the logical part of like what happened in your day and what did you learn today, but also like, how are you feeling? And if I was scared or if I was lonely, like that was, I was welcomed in my household. Not as much when I was with my peers, let's say if I was in school, uh, you know, as a, a white athletic male, I didn't, I didn't feel that safety, but that's a little bit about my family. Uh, professionally, I I went a pretty traditional route to start my career. So I, I still part-time work in accounting. I've spent the first seven plus years in accounting. And so I, I developed, yeah, I'm a very analytical thinker and accounting is something that always made sense to me. So I, I like when the answer, there is an answer, like that's a, that's a, <laughs> I don't know what the right word is, but that it just is something that's comforting for me to know that I can land on something. But there's also another part of me that was probably suppressed for a really long time that loves to address the complexities of being a human. And there was, as a little kid, there was also always a part of me that was like, why are we the way that we are? Like, what drives us to do certain things? And like, and so that manifested in accounting. It was like, why the, why the hell am I doing this? I don't really like it anymore. I want to do something that I'm more aligned with that is more driven by purpose and passion. So the last three or so years have, it started with just addressing that big question of like, what do I really want to do? I have no idea, but I want to explore. And that has emerged into, I want to, I want to coach people. So for a while, even just saying I want to coach people was like, well, why do I want to do that? Like, what does that really mean? I want to help people. And there's still a little bit of that saviorism that I'm unpacking. That's been a lot of my work this past year is I am not telling people a way to live. I'm helping them unearth what is blocking them from living the way that they want to live. And that's been a large part of my journey too, professionally, like unearthing what's blocking me from being the way that I want to be, the way that I know that I could be if I was fully safe. And uh, relationally, <laughs> I, have a, I think I have a tougher time explaining how, yeah, like what, what that would even mean to me, but I'll give, it, I'll give it a hack. I'm married. I've been married for a, about a year and a half, a little less than a year and a half. I've been with my partner for about five and a half years. And I would say that our relationship is one where we're very safe. I mean, the fact that I'm on a podcast where this is going to be broadcast publicly is like, I can imagine most relationships, there's not a lot of safety to say like what's happening in their relationship. I have that to express myself publicly. My wife is more of a private person, but yeah. I, I, if I didn't have that as a relationship, it would be harder for me to feel grounded in stepping into all these other things that are important to me. With my friendships and coworkers, it's a, that's a trickier one. I still don't feel safe being fully me a lot of times. Uh, I have a lot of close friends, but not a lot of people that I would consistent consistently like really open up to and be My truest self with like all of my flaws and telling people where I'm stuck and just naming, like, I'm feeling really sad, I'm feeling frustrated, whatever it might be. And a part of that is like, I'm developing my own emotional literacy around these things where I'm a, I know that we're all thinking and heavily feeling beings, but I'm still mapping out like, where, what am I feeling? Where am I feeling that in my body? And yeah, my body gets a little tight when I'm with my friends. Sometimes it doesn't allow me to. I'm still getting comfortable with that tightness and and getting curious about what that means. So, like that's where I'm at relationally with with people. And and to put a, I'll put a bow on it. When I'm with other people that I consider more evolved or very evolved, more evolved than me or very evolved, I will go all the way there. So, like with you, I feel comfortable just sharing all this, which is in a way is really funny when I have friends that I've known for 20 plus years that I don't give myself permission to go there or only permission to go there if I'm recording something and then, you know, I'm not face to face with them. So that's a, that's a little bit about me in those domains. Beautiful. And that's perfect. That's all I needed to hear. So, so I'll kind of just
1: cycle through the different categories that you shared there and share what I heard in terms of some markers of different, you know, developmental stages. So, the, the the word evolved, right, you used a number of different times, and uh, evolution, that concept of evolution, in the way that you're using it, usually comes up around integral, right, so we start to have some of these ideas of, oh, we are evolving as individuals, we evolve as a species, we evolve as communities, right, so that's kind of a, an integral concept, and you dropped that right at the beginning when you were talking about your family, and that your family, you grew up in an emotionally evolved family, so um, I mean, that's an indicator to me that, you know, like you, you were saying, your parents did their internal work and they were willing to do therapy and they were willing to, you know, create that safe space for you, which is a beautiful sign because not very many people grow up in that kind of a context. And so that clearly has been a, a foundation uh, to support you in, in your own development. So that's one of the keywords that came up there. Um, you mentioned, you know, both logical and feeling. So that's kind of like the, the both and aspect that comes up. you know as we as we talk about, you know you, you wouldn't usually have people talking about you know logics and feeling um, until achiever. So there's kind of an indication there where we have expert, we have achiever. I'll call the third one in the subtle so we have you know I've talked about eight stages today. so we have the we, I can put numbers on them, but it's usually easier for people to understand if there's names on them. Mm-hmm. so, um the kind of the we can say the infant the toddler the child the teenager um the teenager is maybe more the conformist because we also get a lot of you know adults there uh, conformist they conform to things then we have the expert the achiever the pluralist and integral let's say and so you know that that logical and feeling so we've got you know we start to bring those together we talk about head and heart Um, at the at the end of achiever and so it's clear that you have like at least a solid basis there you talked to some integral concepts so i'm seeing a bit of a range there um you talked about work one of the first words that you used was you know developed which is again another you know integral type concept we usually talk about development and how i'm developing or you know how i've been developing over time then you you uh You mentioned, um, you know, thinking, you know, that whole, the whole subtle, you know, realm. So from expert all the way up to integral, we can talk about thinking in different ways. Um, You talked about like having an answer, like there is an answer. Um, And that's, 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 that's quite a, like an expert, right? So we we talk about like the specific, what is the answer? Um, And that kind of often starts to change later on as we, as we open up into, you know, there might not always be an answer um, or a clear one. You know, you talked about uh, suppressing. So that suppressing doesn't necessarily indicate a developmental level, but what it might indicate is some shadow, that there's something there that is not being expressed, that uh, that might want to be expressed. You talked about addressing complexities, um, which is, again, probably something that we wouldn't be talking about until, until around Achiever. Or so you talked about aligned purpose and passion, Um, So alignment, that's quite a pluralist, like, let's come into alignment type thing. It's like the reciprocality of coming into relationship together, what I want to do. So now we're now we're talking achiever, like, what is it I want to do? Mm. And, you know, it's useful and healthy to have a range of developmental levels, because then we can operate from all these different developmentals. And what you'll find often is that as we're operating from a you know, an eye, so these stages, they move through individual and collective. So the first two stages are more individual in every tier. So the first four stages are one tier. We call it the concrete tier or the hard tier, hard objects, right? The second four stages, what we call the subtle or soft tier. So it's about soft things, abstract ideas, feelings, thoughts, emotions, um, systems, you know? And uh, so in that, in that subtle tier, you know, we, we talk, when we say I, we're talking about I, 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 that's kind of indicating it's, you know, coming from one of the first two stages often. And the kind of, we talk more from a we space of we are evolving, we are developing, we are we are humanity, right? Then it's kind of coming more from the latter two kind of more collective stages. And, um, but you also said like, I, I wanna help people. Now that, that could be an indicator of what we call pluralist, like you wanting to help other people. But you also get people saying that from you know uh, uh, the 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 earlier uh, child or teenage mm-hmm. stages. Like mm-hmm. I just want to help people. You know, it's, the question is like, what people do you want to help, right? So if you want to, if you said, for example, like I want to help humanity, or I want to help minorities, or I want to help, now I'm thinking, ah, oh, yeah, that's more pluralist type thing. So it depends who the people is, and I didn't ask you, so you know, that's where I would maybe as a coach dig a little bit deeper to understand, yeah. you know, what's going on there you mentioned um you know your married life and i i heard you know there was there was some kind of a little bit of uh you talking about being safe but also like the expression of publicly and that maybe you're not sure how much your wife you know might want shared or whatever um but you talked about being grounded so that kind of that sense of being grounded we wouldn't usually talk about that kind of thing until we until we're around pluralist right like that sense of being grounded is almost like a an, an energetic thing like I feel grounded yes. and that's that's quite a quite a uh, uh usually comes up around pluralist or so then now there was the, the some of the interesting one you talked about your friendship and coworkers and how those relationships are a bit different or you don't feel quite as safe now that to me either could indicate that there's an earlier developmental level happening when you're in those contexts or um or possibly that there's shadow around some of those relationships. Um, I don't necessarily have enough information to tell that here, except there were some things that you said, like, for example, that, you know, like I get tight. So it's like, yes. oh, that tightness. And yeah, that could potentially indicate a shadow, but it could also just indicate not having a certain sense of comfort in a certain context, which could be a, a new developmental experience but if some of these relationships are relationships that you've had for like 20 years and you're feeling tight, then that likely indicates that it's not a new developmental context. And it's just that there's some shadow there around opening up in those spaces. Um, and so if I was, you know, coaching, we might then open up into, okay, you know, like, tell me about that tightness, you know, that you're curious about, and, you know, what's going on there and how does that come up? And But then you started talking about some other relationships and, but maybe like, it's like almost like you've you've got like different maybe there's some friends that you're you know more close to or something where you then started talking about developing again like developing your own emotional literacy um in in that context i was like ah now we've got a little bit of that kind of integral development idea coming up again and then the last piece you talked about you know being with people who seem more evolved or whatever it might be. And so now we're getting back to that kind of integral concept yeah. seeing that other people are operating at different developmental levels. And so when I'm with people who are aware of that kind of thing, then I can also be in that, you know, kind of stage. So that would be how I would, you know, term that stuff. So I, if I were to kind of summarize, I would say I saw in there everything from expert up to integral. And there are potentially some shadows in there, but I would want to dig a bit deeper before I could confirm that. And, but, you know, if I was working with you, it'd be like, okay, you know, I know that at least he has some integral capacities that we can work with. Um, I'm not sure if your center of gravity is there yet, so to speak, you know, there were certainly plenty of markers there. So it's certainly clear that you have some capacities there but it's not necessarily determined that like, that's where you spend most of your time because maybe like you said, now you're with uh, someone who you consider evolved you know or evolving with you that maybe now you're in this conversation you're using more of those words than you usually would in other contexts and so i don't know what you're like in those other contexts so i can't determine from this space if that's your regular sort of way of being yeah so does that does that give you an indication of how you map some of that stuff out
0: yeah no that was really helpful thank you for doing that and yeah, you, there there were a couple of times that you mentioned like maybe there are shadows, and <laughs> I can assure you there are plenty of shadows, and <laughs> we'll we'll save that for a, a different conversation though. So that I found that really helpful, and I've I've always gotten good feedback from my listeners when I present myself as a test case or you know an example of someone's work. Then it, it's really helpful. So thanks for doing that with me.
1: Yeah.
0: There's a lot that I wanted to get into with you today. I wanted I wanted to talk about China. And unfortunately we don't have I don't think we have enough time left to get into that. So we'll we'll save that for another conversation. But there's just a couple of things I wanted to go over with you before we wrap up. So one is what was the what would you say is the best investment that you've ever made? And that could be of your time. It could be a place that you went to learn. It could be money, however, you interpret it. What's what's the best investment or most memorable investment that you've ever made? Hmm.
1: Yeah, one of the things that I, I used to take the frame of reference of quite a lot as I was once I became independent from my family, is I would I would often be willing to invest in my future, right? And so that would mean that I, you know. Actually, from a quite a young age, I was always willing to delay gratification for a potential future. You know, that was just something that kind of came naturally to me. Like, the one example is in, in, in my culture, when we grew up, we would get an Easter egg every Easter. And I'd be the kind of kid that would still have at least a little bit of the Easter egg left over. By the time next Easter came around, so I'd like I'd nibble at it bits and pieces over the year, and my brother and sister would like finish it in the first day, and they'd always be like, you know, (laughs) wanting to eat mine, and they probably did when I wasn't looking, but I'd always have a little bit left over. So that kind of like it was an indication that oh, I was willing to like put off enjoyment now for something later, and that's kind of been a common theme in my life where I've been willing to go through harsher things now so that i can have that which i might want more later on now the language that i might use around that has shifted over time like you know when i was an expert it might have been that like i'm gonna learn more knowledge now so that i'll be more you know of an expert later on or when i was in you know achiever it might be it might have been more like I'm going to work really hard now and build as much, you know, whether it's companies or, or businesses or opportunities, you know, now, so that later on I can kind of rest on my laurels and have a more, more relaxed life or have more, you know, uh, kind of lifestyle that I want to have. Or when, you know, maybe I was spending more time in pluralist, it might've been, might've been like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to spend more time, going out and understanding a variety of different perspectives now so that later on in my life I'm going to really have that kind of more holistic understanding of you know who I am and how I fit into the different contexts that I'm in um, and then maybe from a kind of a more integral perspective might have been more like you know I'm going to spend you know my time and energy and effort and resources on you know developing myself both internally and in terms of the systems around me, um, so that later on, I'll have a greater impact on uh, 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 a wider scale of the evolution of humanity, right? So in those ways, I feel like it's, it's for me, it's, it's, it's often been that question of investment. Where do I invest and how do I invest? And, and the question for me has often led back to the self or myself. And so anything that really helps me, and if it was expert, it would have been learn. In Achiever, it would have been more like grow. In Pluralist, it would have been more like become more aware or like build my awareness, right? In in um, Integral, it might have been more like develop more. So anything that has helped me do, learn, grow, build awareness, develop, those are the things that I've been willing to invest in. And those could be personal development courses, uh, retreats, education of some form, experiences that I feel that are going to be really transformative, or I'm going to learn a lot from them. Those for me have been the things that I've been willing to invest in. And that has meant that I, I feel like I've kind of lived a quite a minimalist life. I don't have a lot. I don't carry a lot. I mean, Last year, I spent a year with my family living in a camper and traveling around North America. You know, so mm-hmm. everything that we owned was in the camper and it was a small camper. So, you know, it, for me, that's what sort of, is about the experience and, and being on the road with my family and creating the kind of context whereby my children can experience an entirely new form of. Education, you know, we we homeschooled them, but we called it world schooling because we weren't at home because we lived in the camper, right? And so for me, that has been true both, you know, for myself. But now that I have a family, a wife and two kids, it's the same with them. So I'm not a big spender on like things or like objects, but I do love uh, creating experiences and investing in. In, in potential opportunities for, for all of us to, to develop or expand our awareness or become more conscious or way to expand out into, you know, the, the leading edge of, you know, what it is to be human, you know, the emergent reality that we live in or the unfolding of what it is that it means to be a human being or beyond into, you know, whatever it is that might be the next evolutionary stage of humanity because we are living it right now. We are co-creating a new form of species that is entirely different or in, or, or in many aspects becoming more and more different than what it was. And so for me, that then becomes not only an individual investment, but it becomes an investment in consciousness itself. Right? How do we actually most naturally, most beautifully, allow the universal consciousness to come through us. And a lot of that tends to seem to have to do with letting go of attachments that we might have to either those physical objects, like I was saying, or even ego structures. And those could be, you know, my thoughts or the model that I have of reality or you know anything that i seem to latch onto as you know something like my beliefs or the stories that i have about things and to be able to open up into the constantly emerging reality that is here and now that comes out of the timeless boundless and that we are living in in every moment and that is something that you know i don't know if the word investment fits anymore <laughs> in that kind of a context but it's it's certainly leaning into And allowing our rise or to hold space for or to integrate, unify, you know, bring together, you know, allow that which is the greater consciousness, whatever it is that we feel into that and what what it is that makes sense to us, to to allow that to come through us um, into our lives and out into the world.
0: Mm, Beautiful. Well, before I ask my very last question, where where would you point people to connect with you and it, do you have any wish that, that you have for the listener?
1: Where people connect with me, I used to be fairly active on LinkedIn. I'm not so active anymore since they've now banned it in China or it's left China. So at least for the next few months, I probably won't be spending very much time on LinkedIn uh, until I leave China. So my website, which is basically just myname.com, is a place that you can find me, and you'll find links to a lot of my different work. Um, I mean, you can also just drop my name in Google, and you'll find YouTube videos and podcasts. And you mentioned earlier uh, China as a topic that you're interested in exploring. If the people you know listening to this are interested, although I'm happy to have another conversation with you about it, um, I did a great, uh, um, or rather, he did a great podcast with me, a guy called. Uh, Tyson Yunka Porta, who, who he, he runs a fantastic podcast. Uh, he calls them yarns, where we just have a yarn about something it's like a conversation, right? Um, and uh, the podcast name is, is, I think it's China is a thing. Um, and so if you search my name, China is a thing, or my name, and Tyson, you'll probably find it. And that we go into quite a lot of depth about China and con- uh, the context of China, perspectives on China, um, and he's quite an interesting thinker, um, which I think takes it in a, a fascinating direction. So, if people are interested in that, they can go check it out. And um, yeah, any wish that I have for the audience? You know, I I've found myself in my life quite easily getting caught up in areas that I felt I, you know, either wasn't good enough or hadn't developed enough or hadn't succeeded enough or achieved enough or learned enough or, and more and more these days, I'm feeling into being enough, just being enough. And that, you know, there are maybe people out there who don't like me or disagree with me, or maybe even feel disgusted by me or whatever but that more and more coming into an embodied place of being perfect just the way I am. And that, you know, the world loves me just the way I am. And if there was a wish for me, it would be for more people to feel that, not just maybe think it on a logical level, but to feel accepted and loved. And you will use the word safe earlier on, to feel loved and accepted and safe, in more contexts right you know if we might feel it with our closest loved ones but how do I learn to feel that with people who hate me or people who shout at me or people who criticize me can I still feel that and then can I expand that out beyond myself and feel the same for the other feel the same for those who might criticize me or those who might just maybe not understand me and can I love them as myself can i accept them as perfect just the way that they are and can i expand out from a place of compassion for myself and for for all uh, beings
0: thank you for that i i need to hear that just as much as any listener needs to hear that and i i typically end the interview by asking what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life but this this really seems like a good place to wrap up the conversation. That's a, a perfect perfect answer, Fion. I I so enjoyed having you on. I was I was gobbling up everything that you were saying, and I can't wait to listen back on this conversation. You have you have so much to share. You've lived such an interesting life, and I experience you as someone who does it with lots of humility. And you mentioned. Like a servitude through you almost instead of a, there might be another context where it's by me and that might be the achiever mode. You're doing this from a place of like, it's just, I'm a, I'm a servant to the planet and this is, it's all coming through me and uh, I'm just fulfilling my, <laughs> my humanity really just being a person and allowing it to come through you. What a, what a beautiful gift. It's been an honor to have, you on and to be on the receiving end of that so thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me on this and to all the listeners i just want to share with you the the same wish that fion had I, i hope that you realize that you are enough just the way that you are in any context even with and especially with people who don't agree with you don't like you and i'm saying that to myself as well and Uh, Whenever you're listening, have a good rest of your day or night and take good care. Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's search for meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well and keep living with purpose. Peace.